Our scripture text uh, for this morning is Colossians uh, 4, verses 5 and 6. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, you'll see Bibles there uh, in the chairs behind or in front of you. And you'll also see that we have an insert uh, that includes the text as well and leaves space uh, for notes. Now, let me do mention a word for any of the, the children who are using the bulletin. It says ages 7 to 10 or 11, I think. You'll see an insert in there as well. And it has words in there. And I put those words there. And uh, the children in the church, what they'll do is they'll mark every time they hear it. And I especially like it when they come back to me afterwards and tell me how many times that the, I recorded those words. Sup- I'm oftentimes surprised myself. So let's look here at uh, Colossians. Again, uh, chapter 4. Verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, last Sunday... Was a sermon was a, the first of a two-part message, and it was on understanding and responding to our culture. We looked at Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 19. We learned that a culture that does not acknowledge God as Lord, does not acknowledge the authority of Scripture, well, over time, inevitably, it's going to decline in its moral ways. Without God... Without Scripture, it is going to be the heart that people appeal to, and the heart will always lead us along our sinful inclinations. That's just the way it is. And we then observed how this decline is being played out today in sexual behavior, as well as the culture's view of of religion in general, and particularly of the Christian faith. And we concluded that we must remember what God has done for us in Christ. He is the one who is in control, and therefore what matters is that we remain faithful to him. Now then the question is, what does it mean to be faithful to him? What do we actually do? How are we to act, to respond in the midst of changes that are taking place in our country, changes that are leading to hostility, actually to us as Christians? Well, for guidance, we're looking at this text that I've just read. And the apostle is wrapping up his letter. Like Ephesians, he started his letter reminding his readers about the person and the work of Christ. And he then exhorts them, just as he does in Ephesians, put off the old self. That self before you knew Christ, before you you were regenerated, and put on a new self that is in Christ. And then he gives them specific instructions. As he is uh, saying goodbye to the Colossians here, he's he's asking for prayer for his own labors. They have caused him to be placed in prison. He doesn't ask that they pray for him to be released, but that while he is in prison, the doors would be open for him to declare the gospel, to articulate the message of the gospel clearly while he is there. Now, that leads him to remind the believers of how they should behave 
and how they should speak to outsiders, that is, their unbelieving neighbors. And so they are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of their time. Or to put it in another way, we are to think before we speak. We're to think about what really matters. What will most honor Christ? What will enhance the reception of the gospel? And when we speak, we are to, as he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So again, our speech is to be gracious, not grating. It is to be seasoned with salt, not with bitter herbs. So that our goal is not to score points, to put others in their place, but to win their hearing. And so I want to give an example of of wisdom and gracious speech that was used to win, to, to, to win the hearing, even eventually to bring the conversion of a leader in the gay movement. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was an associate professor of English at Syracuse University. Her specialty, officially, her title, was that of queer theory. as a postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies. She was the leading spokesperson for the gay movement uh, at the university and in her community. She was completely immersed in the gay culture, heart, intellect, soul. And her conversion eventually was not the result of feeling empty, feeling unfulfilled. In fact, she says it's the conversion that when she became a Christian that she describes that's what produced the train wreck in her life. And so I want you to hear, first of all, her description of her gay life. Because where we often first make our mistake is we, we tend to lump homosexuals into a group of kind of sex-crazed individuals to kind of have a bent we're always worried about for preying on, on youth. Let me read her description of her life. My life as a lesbian seemed normal. I considered it an enlightened, chosen path. Lesbianism felt like a cleaner and more moral sexual practice. As a professor of English and women's studies, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. As a scholar of the 19th century, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. My life at this time was happy meaningful and full. My next lesbian partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS, activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue. It was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill sacrifice, and integrity. Indeed, I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my gay community. Let this sink in for a moment. In my own life in Philadelphia, 
I mean, I had the privilege to know men and women in the gay community, and I observed firsthand I mean, their hospitality, their friendships. I can attest to their concerns for justice and compassion. So can you see then how frustrating it must be for them to receive, as Dr. Butterfield did, male signs, taunts that proclaim God's hatred of them? Well, let me continue here with her story. It's 1997. The Promise Keepers were coming to town. She wrote an editorial in the town paper criticizing it. She writes this. I received so many letters for this little editorial that I kept empty Xerox paper boxes on both sides of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. In this batch of mail, I also received a letter from Pastor Ken Smith, then pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you were right? Do you believe in God? He didn't argue with my article. He asked me to explore and defend presuppositions that undergirded him. I didn't really know how to respond to Ken's letter, but found myself reading and rereading it. I didn't know what box to file this letter in, and so it sat on my desk and haunted me. Now that wise and gracious letter would lead to a two-year friendship, and the culmination would be Dr. Butterfield's conversion. And yet, it was the very idea that she was not viewed as a target, but as a friend, and that's what allowed her to to let down her armor and to consider and listen to his thoughts. And so again she writes, I responded to this one letter, and Ken and I became friends, real friends, not friendship evangelism. I was not a project to Ken. I was a neighbor. And Ken taught me that Christians value neighbors. And so we see here wisdom and graciousness, a gracious speech that our text presents before us. These are the two operative concepts from which we as Christians are to address our culture. We are to have wisdom to clearly understand the teachings of Scripture. And I, and I should mention next week, uh, I will present a sermon specifically on what Scripture has to teach on the subject of homosexuality. But we are to clearly understand the teachings of Scriptures as well as the perspective of what's called in our text the outsiders, our neighbors. And we are to have the graciousness to speak the truth in love. I want you to hear other biblical texts relating this same thought. The first one is from 1 Peter 3. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, that is. Have no fear of the culture, of the authorities of that day. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then to the, the book of wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 15:1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And then Proverbs 16, 23 to 24. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Now I fear, with our good intentions, that we too often take our cues for how we are to speak from radio talk show hosts who understand, they understand what they're doing. Their ability to attract listeners is to be entertaining and it is to be provoking. That's how they keep on the air. Rather than to be winsome and to be respectful. We who bear the name Christian must always give as much thought to the manner in which we speak as to the truth that we speak. How we speak, how we treat our neighbor is important to God. Jesus clearly taught this. He said we must love God and our neighbor. In fact, he says that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We do not want to be rudely spoken to. We don't want to be mistreated. Which should lead us, by the way, to understanding one reason for why we, for what we regard as unfair and Bias treatment towards ourselves. I mean, that's our concern, isn't it? I mean, it's my concern. Well, what's going to happen in the, in the future? I noted last week that we're, we're moving into an era in which our society is growing ever hostile, at least to evangelical Christians, or to anyone, for that matter, who differ with the same-sex marriage ruling to embracing a gay lifestyle. Individuals we know have already lost jobs, Businesses have been fined. The pressure is only going to grow to keep our beliefs in the closet. And we ask, why? We say, why can we just not agree, just just agree that there's going to be differences of opinion without having to be branded homophobic and without losing jobs or worrying about our reputation? Why are they so unfair? But again, I want us to consider how our complaint would sound to a body of people who until until recent years had to keep their own beliefs, views, their sexual identity in the closet. And we know they had to keep quiet in order to keep a job or to get a job. If they were found out, they would be kept from teaching positions. They could not serve in the military. They faced taunts. They faced hate that was spilled out against them, and often in the name of God. Their families were ashamed of them. They were the secret that could not be revealed, and especially in the church. Now, can you understand then why there would not be sympathy now that the tables are actually turning? Can you understand the fear that they would have of going back to those old ways. 
And we might rightly call on our gay neighbors to repent. They should. But they have the right to ask us if we have repented from the ways in which we, in the past at least, if not now, have treated them as the lepers of society. And we might claim today that we are not homophobic, but even that comes because of the society's acceptance, open acceptance of gays, not because it came out of the churches. And I said, it's our repentance that is most likely to win listening ears. Now, I witnessed this firsthand at our General Assembly uh, just last month. Our General Assembly is the annual meeting of all the ministers and representatives from the churches. and We're meeting in Nashville. And resolutions are often brought in just at this General Assembly on the first day to <clears throat> highly respected leaders in our denomination, Dr. Legan Duncan and Dr. Sean Lucas presented a resolution. And, and let me just read a report. It's pretty accurate of what followed. It says, That resolution called the General Assembly to confess our sins regarding our complicity and involvement in racial injustice during the civil rights era up until the present day. These sins had recently been addressed through the research of PCA historians, including the the same Reverend Dr. Lucas, Dr. Otis Pickett, and Reverend Bobby Griffith. According to our rules, the resolution was received by the assembly and referred to the overtures committee, whose job it is to recommend to the assembly what action should be taken on the resolution. The resolution was debated in committee for over nine hours. The predominant arguments against adoption were were that the assembly needed more time to consider this issue and that the resolution needed perfecting. There were others who argued that the PCA did not exist during the civil rights era, that individual presbyters themselves did not do these things and therefore could not confess, that the resolution seemed to cave to political correctness and white guilt, and that if prominent PCA churchmen were racist, perhaps they have repented of it, thus we shouldn't call them out. Now, typically, the pattern is you would debate this on the floor, then there would be a debate. But in this case, leaders had worked out a, a recommendation to refer the matter to next year's assembly with the intent that they're going to have a clearer, stronger resolution to act on. Now, that eventually was agreed to, but not without a, a gut-wrenching confession of sin on the floor. There were men who just got up there and they began to confess, and none were more powerful than that of Jim Baird, the former senior minister at First Presbyterian in Macon. Let me read what he says. Mr. Moderator, Jim Baird, Mississippi Valley Presbyterian. In 1971, 12 men were elected to form a new denomination. Take two years and form that denomination. Of those 12 men, six were ministers and six were ruling elders. All have died or left the PCA except two, Kennedy Smart and me. And I confess that in 1973, the only thing I understood was that we were starting a new denomination, which we did. 
And I confess that I did not raise a finger for civil rights. I was taught with one thing, and that was to start a new denomination for the sake of the scripture, for the sake of the preservation of historic Presbyterianism, and for the furtherance of the gospel proclamation. And so I confess my sin. I'm not confessing the sin of my fathers. I'm confessing my sin and of those 12 men. Were we racist? No. But we did not do anything to help our black brethren. And one of the men who got up to to pray is George Robertson. He's the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Augusta. And the report of his prayer is as follows. He stood up, he confessed his own sins, but also the sins of his congregation. He confessed that his church supported slave-owning and that the African-Americans were kept in the balcony away from the white worshipers. He also confessed that during the civil rights era, when local police built a developmentally challenged African-American boy to death, in the town jail, the leaders of his church did nothing. Now, what impact did the confessions of these men have on our African-American brethren? Well, one wrote this. This man, Dr. Baird, will forever have my utmost respect. Another replied, I totally agree. I take a bullet for Reverend Jim Baird. Wow. I've been waiting 20 years to finally hear something like that. Super encouraged by George Robertson's prayer as well. And then Roy Taylor, who's preached here, he's a stated clerk, he had this to say. This writer has attended every general assembly the PCA has ever had. In his opinion, the periods of prayer and expressions of repentance and brotherly love on the Thursday evening session of the 2015 General Assembly were the most evident and powerful work of the Holy Spirit at any PCA assembly heretofore. See, repentance wins respect, not disdain. It gains listeners. It doesn't make ears deaf. People aren't going to then say, aha, I told you so. Now I've got you. Repentance before God wins the attention of men and women. And they will pay attention to those who give greater attention to getting the log out of their own eyes. Think of our text again. Wisdom, graciousness, and repentance. They're a powerful combination. And we're we're fortunate to live in a democracy where we can participate so far in public debate and discussion and through voting. And you should be prayerfully be considering your own participation. You might write to your government officials and representatives. You might support organizations that promote good causes. But whatever you are convicted to do, Exercise these three biblical commands. They're not recommendations. They're commands. It's when we act out of the ordinary way of responding to those who differ with us, to those who would even do us harm, 
That's when the world takes notice. I mean, haven't the actions of Mother Emmanuel Church in Charleston taught us that biblical lesson? And after all, we follow the one who responded to a sinful world, to a rebellious world, in the most extraordinary manner. So let's look in Philippians in chapter 2, the example of our Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, we may not change the attitude of others, even as we respond in Christ-like humility and love, but we will win the commendation of our Lord as we honor Jesus Christ. And it's his response that matters. Let's pray. We do thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. It's while we were sinners, no, as your word says, it's while we were enemies that he died for us. By your spirit, our Father, give us wisdom, to have the wisdom of our Lord, to give us the gracious speech, to speak in, in a manner to our neighbors that honors you. Give us the courage to repent before ourselves, to, to admit to ourselves what we need repenting of, to repent before you even, uh, to repent that the world may see that repentance. We thank you again for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.